Our text this morning is from Psalm 116. You can find that on page 510 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds, and I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of his house, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Thank you, Keats, Jacob's friend, for playing the chill. Everybody say, hi, Keats. You probably hated every second of that, and I apologize. Okay. Uh, Welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Ransom. It's good to be back again. Uh, with you all. Um, We continue in Psalm 116. Allow me to pray for us before we take a look at the scripture that God would have us learn from today. Father, even in this moment, we are a people in need. I'm a pastor in need. We are a congregation in need. We are in need of your spirit's power, your spirit's comfort, your spirit's conviction. We need what you have for us. And all too often, as John was talking about before the confession of sin, we go to other things with empty promises. And so this morning we come to your word because your word is full of real promises to us. And so I pray this morning you would overcome our deficiencies, that's your expertise, and you would fill us up with your grace, your mercy, your righteousness. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's start this morning by talking about world religions. Some of you know I'm a religion nerd, but let's talk about religions. Um, uh, before you uh, uh, get your pitchforks and torches out, I'm going to say something, but hold on. All religions do have one thing in common. Okay, all religions who have one thing in common. All religions are looking for a solution to suffering. And that's where the similarities really end. So even things in this world that aren't technically called religions, if they're looking to solve suffering, they're a religion. Okay, they're, they're a system of belief to ease pain. Let's talk about different kinds of religions. First, some religions teach 
that to find peace, to find salvation, whatever you're going to call it, you, that, that, um, you must escape real life. You must escape real life. Um, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism have this thing called samsara, S-A-M-S-A-R-A, which means the cycle of meaningless wandering. Okay, this is life. That's what they call life. And this is why they believe that you live life after life after life because you're stuck in this cycle of meaninglessness until you escape it. And the Buddha is one who has escaped this never-ending cycle of life through enlightenment. That's what it is. That's what they're saying. So uh, the Buddha has escaped because they're free from karma. They're free from good and bad works that keep us tethered to life. So what's the solution to suffering and those types of religions? Escape. And how do we escape? Here's the list of things you have to do on your own to do that. That's what it is. That's just what it is. There's no hope in this life. You have to escape it. Other religions teach something a little different. They teach that you have to conquer real life. We're in it. It stinks, but you have been given test after test, and really how you perform in this life determines how things will go, when you will escape. So uh, Islam or the religion of Mormonism both teach that there is a set of rules you need to abide by, that hardship in life is a test, and that test, how you do in that test determines how things will go at the end. If you do well enough, you'll make it. Now, we all know, whether we admit it or not, we don't do well, we can't do well, and so really, there is no hope in these religions. You kind of are crossing your fingers until the end, and you see how it goes. At least Islam has, uh, uh, is honest about this. You can do all the things you're supposed to do, and Allah may just say, nah, at the end. That's how it works. There's no hope in this life. It's a test. Your performance determines how you're doing, and I don't know about you, I have no confidence in my performance. <laughs> I have none. I have none. And so those are different kinds of religions. Their answer to suffering when it comes to authentic, orthodox, biblical Christianity, it's unique. It's unique. There's no other religion like it because Christianity tells us the teachings of, of Orthodox Christianity tells us we can have hope now and have confidence in eternity. Do you hear how that's the opposite of all the things we just talked about? You can have hope right now and in real life and have confidence in what's happening to you in the end. Christianity teaches that we cannot, we cannot escape or overcome on our own so that God himself God himself entered human existence to do what was necessary to free us from those things. There's no other religion like it. God's action, God's action, not ours, generates salvation. It's a gift to be received. That's where our confidence in eternity can come from. God did it already. God's action is not determined by our previous action. And God's action will evoke a response from his followers. Psalm 116, I think, does a wonderful job. They were waiting for my approval, by the way. Um, does a wonderful job highlighting these two things, God's action, our reaction. There's three of each. We're going to look at those this morning. So first, 
God hears his people. Verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to start. So a little context. The psalmist, whoever he may be, she may be, uh, the psalmist is in real trouble. They're in real trouble. Uh, Some sort of physical danger. Look at verse 3, if you will, is where we're going to start. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. The psalmist is in a dark place. One of the benefits of the Psalms uh, ordained by God is that they stay vague at times. We know that there's a serious situation going on, but the details are out. So uh, we can relate to the fact that this is a dark place. The psalmist is in a very dark place. So when we are in dark places like the psalmist, we can go where they go. Let's, where, do, where do they go? They go to God. But let's first consider our own trials this morning. Let's relate ourselves to the dark place, the, the, the suffering of distress and anguish. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you feel misunderstood. Maybe you feel judged. Maybe you have a health issue. Maybe just the, the, the uncertainty of life uh, is driving you crazy. You don't know what's going to happen next. You feel like you need to know what's happening next, and you're stressed, you're anguishing about that. Maybe your pain comes from the relationship you have with your children, your parents, your spouse. Maybe the anguish or the distress you feel this morning comes from the words of others. Maybe it's your own words that you've said and regret. I think it's important to understand, we've talked about this many times over the last several months, but dark times are dark times. There is no comparison of suffering in First Peter, it says, we will suffer trials of various kinds. That means God knows our hurt, and our hurt is hurt. That's what it is. It's just hurt. And so no matter how relatively trivial you think your hurts are, we're told here, call out to God. That's what we're told to do. Look at verses 1 and 4. This is good news that we can call out to God, that we're told to call out to God. Why? Because God hears. Look at verse 1. I love the Lord. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Verse 4, talking about what he did as soon as uh, he was in distress. I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. It It is a comfort. It is a comfort knowing that God hears us. As it does for the psalmist in verse 2, it can... um it can warm our hearts. He says in, in verse 1, I love the Lord because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, for I will call on him as long as I live. And so we see here the uniqueness of Christianity. God is not just listening from afar. He's attentive in our pain. He's attentive in the psalmist's pain. Now, if God only heard us, how awful would that be? Oh, yeah, I hear you, I hear you, really tough, really tough. Uh, That's it. Okay, no, but look, it goes on. The second thing that God does, his actions in Psalm 116, God preserves his people, verses 5 through 7. Look at the declarations about God's character in verse 5. The psalmist says, gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God, is merciful. What do these words mean? Gracious, pertaining to the giving of mercy to the needy. Giving of mercy to the needy. Righteous uh, is the acting according to the proper standard. Now what's good news about God is he is the standard. So whenever God acts, it is righteousness. Merciful, having affection to act on behalf of the one 
in difficulty. Reading uh, Paul David Tripp's New Morning Mercies just this morning, he says this from his devotional, mercy meets us in struggle and guarantees us someday that struggle will end. That's what mercy does for us. These are parts of God's character. God has a deep affection, deep affection for the incapable and the needy. That's where God's affection lies. Now, these are tremendous promises for one type of person. (laughs) For one type of person. What is that person? The needy. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, you can read as a light bulb for the psalmist. They are, it's a realization of something. Look at verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. Now, this is a word that we don't use very often in this way. We'll talk about what it means in a minute. But look at the realization. When I was brought low, he saved me. What's, what's the psalmist's understanding here? First of all, what does simple mean? It means several things, several concepts. One, inexperienced. We don't know what to do. The simple in this passage does not have information in order to act in the right way every time. Inexperienced. I don't know what to do. Helpless means completely unprepared for what's coming next. <laughs> uh, the NIV uses the word unwary, which I was like, I don't think I've ever heard that, but here's what unwary means, unaware of danger. So imagine this word simple means you're basically a child skipping through a minefield. La, 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 boom. Okay, you see? We don't know where the, where the mines land. We don't know what's going to happen. We're, un, we're ill-prepared for life. How did the psalmist arrive at this understanding of their simpleness, of their unwariness, of their helplessness? They faced true danger. When I was brought low, he saved me. The psalmist knows God delivers. The psalmist knows God preserves because the psalmist has faced catastrophic life circumstances and come through seeing God work. Let's pause just for a second, and we've been talking about the psalmist and, and what the psalmist understands, but let's just for a moment bring this to us. We're going to we'll do more application at the end, but let's talk for a second about what this might mean for us. Listen, we do not know. Let's just talk in real terms, not, not mouth service. We do not know what life will bring. We do not know what choices to make to avoid calamity. We think and we act like, I'm going to make this choice and this choice and this choice, and that will create a good outcome. We think that's how life works. Do we not? I do. I'm going to make this choice going to be good for my kids. I'm going to make this choice going to be good for my job. I'm going to make this choice going to be good for my family. We don't know. We think, we live as if everything's going to be fine, and we don't know. We're helpless. We're inexperienced. We're unwary. And I think that we can learn something from the psalmist in this one verse. The psalmist has been brought low, and now they see their own need at a deep level, and they see God's greatness at a great level. I'm convinced. I'm convinced, and I call this shiny happy people syndrome, all right? Shiny happy people syndrome. The South is rife with it, whether you know it or not. My spiritual growth, your spiritual growth is stunted. It's stunted because we are either afraid or refuse to see just how needy we are. We're afraid of it. 
So what do we do? A couple different things. One, maybe we compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as all that, so can't be that bad. Or we, we, we don't think we're really that good, so we pick something that's palatable, that's a sin of ours, and we say, well, that's my struggle. My struggle is patience with my kids. Listen, it is so much, much, much worse than all that for every single one of us. Every single one of us. But the good news is we are loved more and more and more than we could ever imagine. Do you understand? So the psalmist comes to a realization how good God is. God hears me. God preserves me. They've come to a true realization of this through calamity. We are so averse to pain and suffering. Many of us really don't understand. We know the vocabulary, but we do not know what grace is. Ignorance isn't bliss. In fact, it's spiritual poverty. So we go back to the psalm. The psalmist knows he is needy. And this word simple shows us that he really understands what that means. Incapable, unwary. But God is not. Verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This is the gospel of the moment. We're in trouble personally. We're in trouble in our sin. We're in trouble. We are needy, but God is not needy. God is sufficient. God meets needs. He's merciful. Our problem, talking with a friend this week at breakfast, our problem is that we live in real time. We, we live in real time in God's plan, which is eternal. He knows it all. God Knows God preserves. He knows the end of the plan. That's why we can jump ahead to verse 15. Verse 15 seems a little disturbing. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What does that mean? It means that God knows the entirety of the plan. He knows the fullness of our lives. And when it's over, he knows his plan has been accomplished for us. So while we are stumbling and bumbling through life, God praise his name is on overwatch. He preserves his people. God takes action. God unchangingly determined the destination of his people. That is God persevering. That's God preserving, excuse me. Lastly, so God hears us. God preserves his people. God, finally in verses 8 and 9, delivers his people. Verses 8 and 9, again, you read it with me. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So the psalmist, what has happened? He has been spared literally from death. His life has been lengthened. By no work, no plan of his own, the psalmist was saved. And as the Israelites, you can imagine, as they're praying and singing this together, Israelites too can look back in their history and relate to this. God delivered them from the Egyptians, out of slavery, through the Red Sea. By no plan or work of their own, God did that. And so the psalmist and the Israelites, what are they doing? They're looking back on a moment of deliverance. They're rejoicing in God's action. That's what they're doing. It's what's being said, stated, It's a fact. It's past tense for the psalmist. Now, this is where the psalm in verse 9 transitions, excuse me, to the response of the faithful to God's work. 
What is their response? Verses 10 and 11. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What is he talking about? Listen, when the psalmist was in danger, what did he do? He called out to God. That's a belief. (laughs) I believe that God can save. What does it mean, all mankind are liars? It means if I had called out to anything else and they said they could save me, it wouldn't have been true. Only God can save. The psalmist believed in God as their only hope and savior. And here in verses 10 and 11, what what he's doing, he's affirming that that calling out to God was the only plausible, logical, good thing to do. Secondly, the response, they worship God for his goodness and deliverance. Verses 12 through 14, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pray my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Listen, fair question. Fair question. If God has done something so tremendous for us as deliver us before we did anything, what do I owe him in return? (laughs) That's a question I think people ask. It's a question the psalmist is asking. What do I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What do I owe God? What do I owe him? I love the answer. The answer is this, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. What does God want in return? This is not an action that the psalmist is doing to repay God. This is a symbolic action in their worship of drinking in God's salvation, the cup of salvation, receiving more of God's salvation, receiving more of God's mercy and grace. So what does God want in return? God wants, after doing all these wonderful things, after giving listening and after preserving and delivering to a person that did not deserve it, that did not plan it, what's the price they pay? The price they pay is lifting up the cup of salvation, receiving more of God's benefit. This is an amazing definition of worship. What is worship? It's not giving back to God. Worship is drinking deeply of his salvation and gratitude. That's worship. That's worship. The psalmist is saying, I'm going to go work this off. It's a gift. So what's worship is receiving more of the gift, first and foremost. And after drinking in what God has done, verses 16 through 19, the response is service to God with their whole lives. Oh, Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. After drinking in what God has done and continues to do that, what God will do, what he will do in the future, drinking in his deliverance, the psalmist sees the appropriateness of living every aspect of their life continually, continually drinking in more of God's salvation service, giving out mercy of the same kind that has been received. So God hears his people, he preserves his people, he delivers his people. Our response, the response of the faithful is to believe, worship, and serve. And and as we try to connect this to us in our lives, it's appropriate at this point to mention, listen, this is Psalm 116, it's in the Old Testament. 
everything in the Old Testament, promise-wise, God's action-wise, had a temporal, physical meaning. That's how he interacted with the Israelites. Think about the children's sermon today. We, we used uh, this image of, of a pet and owner, something that the, the children understand to connect to something greater. The Old Testament, as said by Paul in Galatians, is a tutor. It's a tutor. And so, in, in some sense, that they had this physical, the, the psalmist had this physical encounter with near death. God carried them through it. They're responding in song, indeed. And so as the blessings of the Old Testament are physical, they, they had uh, the law, they had the land, the physical land was a, an image of the promise. They had uh, the, 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 the temple. As those things are physical and temporary in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, all those things that were temporary and physical become eternal and spiritual. Let me explain. Jesus changed it from temporary. It's not really about a land or a temple anymore. He tells the woman at the well, you don't have to go to the temple. You worship me in spirit and in truth. He says to the, the people in the temple, you're going to knock this temple down, but in three days I will build it back up. He doesn't mean the physical building. He means himself. What was physical and temporary, the promises of the Old Testament become spiritual and eternal in Christ. So in Christ... These things that we've heard about this physical danger that the psalmist was in, how do they apply to us in a spiritual way? First of all, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, we know that God hears us. We know it. We know God hears us. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He lived in suffering. He resisted temptation. He knew how hard things are. And so God isn't just listening from afar thinking, well, that must just be terrible. That must, that just must be bad. He's lived it. He's lived it. He knows it. He's felt it. He's faced what we faced. And so when we talk to God about our trials, he listens with understanding. In Jesus Christ alone, we know that God preserves us. So listen, we're not going to candy coat this. We may, we will experience a litany of painful experiences in our life. We're going to. As we saw before, what is the purpose of pain? The purpose of pain is to remind us of our need. They're not tests. They're not tests for us. Oh, let's see how Jonathan does with this next one. That's going to create the opposite result of, I don't need God, I can do this. Trials and pain are meant to show us our neediness. Thank you. Life and pain are the path to eternity, but listen, they are secured by God's action. We, if we admit it, are simple, unwary, and helpless. Life's going to knock us down. But we do not face those bumps and bruises without knowledge. What is, we're going to 1 Thessalonians next in the fall. What does Paul say to them? We do not grieve as those without hope. Where does hope come from? Knowing that Jesus walks with us. Knowing that Jesus is with us in pain and waits for us at the end. He preserves us. 
And better than the psalmist could ever understand, in Jesus Christ, we know that God has delivered us, not temporarily from a a dangerous situation, but permanently through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Permanently. So we are not saved now from physical death. We are not saved now from physical pain. But those things are lesser enemies. What's our greatest enemy? The sin that resides in our hearts And right now, again, as Paul says in Galatians, for freedom's sake, Christ set us free. We are free from the bonds of sin. We're free from it now. God has delivered us. And so, Christian, we should not despair. We should not despair. I think it's appropriate to pause amid our pain and in the painful quiet of that moment recall who who God is recall his reputation recall his promise to carry us through to eternity recall the thing he did the thing he suffered to, ins- to guarantee that promise, Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He did it for us. It's a guarantee. And so, listen, listen. Our lives will never feel under control. Do you know why? Because <laughs> they're not. <laughs> they're not under our control. They're not. It's not. And if we could face honestly our need, that it's much worse than we think, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. That's where the true understanding of God's character and his grace and his salvation comes from. And so what's our only recourse? What's our only hope in real life pain? It's to hope in the work and the overwatch of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we have. To recall what he has done, to believe deeply in his salvation, to serve This is our appropriate and supernatural response. For those of you listening online, or maybe you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to hear something specific this morning. Hear and know that God is good. God's good. Listen, I'm going to talk about myself just for a moment. It's a relief to me. It's a relief to me to look at my life to survey my life, and to honestly say, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's a relief. The elders are writing my, my uh, pink slip right now. No, um, listen, I don't have it all figured out. I don't. I, I, I live my life as a child skipping through a minefield. But it's worse than that. <laughs> That's all I understand right now. It's much worse than that. The escape from pain is not on mine or your to-do list. It's not. That's not something we can do. It's not something we can do. I can't, and you all know it, I can't always act rightly. I can't always say the right things. I don't have that ability. I don't have it. There's only one place, there's only one place where someone could admit things like that. And, and not think that the world's going to crash down on them. Standing before our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hears and preserves and delivers his people who don't deserve it. That's the only place. 
That's the only place that we can look at our flawed selves and know that God is good. That's the result. The only place we can say those things is in the presence of one who stoops down and does these things for us without price. And so the concept for both Christian and non-Christian this morning from Psalm 116 is this. Jesus, Jesus is our only chance to live this life with real hope. And Jesus only. Uh, Every pastor, it's mandatory, has to have an airplane story. Um, In fact, after you pass the ordination exams for the ARP, they make you just take flights until you're minding your own business, someone talks to you about Jesus. That's how that works. And then, so I have my airplane story, all right? I have my airplane story. Julie and I, before we had kids, we were flying out of Florida, and we sat next to a man who happened to be a, a rocket scientist, and so I'm minding my own business. And he starts becoming a chatty Kathy, if you will. And uh, he starts asking questions. Uh, what do you do for a living? And when I say I'm a pastor, he says, oh, uh, in a bit of a snarky way, uh, our industries don't have much to do with one another, do they? And in a, maybe some snarkiness, you know me, I'm really not snarky at all. I said in return, I don't know, when you're strapped to the top of a rocket and things are going terrible, you might pray to someone. Um <laughs> Now, most pastor airplane stories end with someone weeping and coming to Christ. Mine ended with a long, awkward, silent flight. Okay. Um, But I tell you this story because that's the perfect image. Rocket scientists think because they built the rocket, they can control the outcome. We may be able to build and do things in our life that seem incredible. We don't control it. Our life is basically strapped to the tip of a rocket. We need God. We need him. And the Lord's Supper is us coming for a little piece of bread and some wine and some juice. But what is it really? It's saying, as you walk down the aisle and you take it and you eat it, you're saying, I am incapable of controlling anything and everything. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And so this morning, we take this tangible physical reminder of something eternal, (laughs) a promise that is true and guaranteed by God. And so when we eat and we drink, it means something. And so what does it mean? If this morning you know you have need, you may not understand the depth of it, but you know you have it. You are unwary. You are helpless. You are simple. If you know that is true and you know that Jesus is the only answer, your only hope, you come this morning with confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus, and you eat and you drink. That's what you're called to do as a friend, as a son, as a daughter, as one who's in need, as one who's receiving God's mercy. His heart is for the needy. This morning, If you do not believe those things, maybe you don't see yourself as someone who's needy. I've got this under control, Pastor Ransom. I've got our, our industries don't have much to do with each other, do they? Listen, first of all, it doesn't make sense for you to come and eat and drink. It doesn't make sense. You you don't think you have a need, so why come and accept what is given to those who need? Secondly, don't leave it at that. You do have a need. You may not know it. Your pride may hurt to admit it, but don't leave it at that. Talk to myself, talk to one of our elders. Let's talk more about 
our shared need. What I'd like to do, give us a moment of silence, and we will uh, gather back together, just take a moment to kind of breathe in what the Lord's Supper means, to put ourselves in a place of receiving it. I will then uh, gather us back together with a prayer of blessing, give some instructions, and we'll distribute the Lord's Supper. Father, reading this morning, catching the phrase in a prayer that it is difficult to live what we say we believe. Boy, that is true. That is true. But we know that you know that because you came and lived it for us. And so this morning, I pray that we can admit, yeah, it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to live the life that you call us to live. It is hard to obey when our flesh says no. It's hard to resist temptation when our flesh, flesh is saying yes. It's hard to be merciful. It's hard to remember your mercy on us, especially in painful situations. But this morning, as we participate in your supper, as we eat the bread, bless it to our bodies. Bless it to our souls. As we drink the wine or the juice, bless it to our bodies. Bless it to our souls. Remind us as it comes into our bodies that we are in need. We need something not inside of us. We need Jesus Christ, and he has done sufficiently what we need. And the Lord's Supper is efficient in connecting us with that grace. Thank you, Lord. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.